every single review I ever had, year end review, was you care more about your clients and you care about the internal team. And so that was like my biggest knock because I just cared so deeply about making sure they were happy and that they got what they needed. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. All right. You're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Sarah Gibson-Tuttle. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming on. So to dive right in, I just assume you were like born and in the delivery room, you started saying like, we got to do something about those nails. Like that's how it started. From the beginning, you just had a thing for cosmetics and beauty and you had to get into it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) So let's take it from the top. Where are you from originally? I'm from Connecticut. So I was born in Stanford. So I'm very much an East Coaster. And tell me about upbringing parents. Like were your parents entrepreneurs as well? Like how did it all start, so to speak? How was your childhood? Yeah. Well, how was my childhood? I mean, like what... How was your childhood? Yeah. Just a very simple question. What a different podcast we're on than I anticipated. My parents are both entrepreneurs. They're also both like serial careerists where they have had multiple different jobs, each of them. My father, all in finance, but he's had his own business and he's been a serial entrepreneur within, like, I think he's had two or three of his own businesses, like within finance. And my mom started off in a bit more of a traditional path. She was a nurse for a very long time and it was a NICU nurse. So saving newborn babies and ICU. So, and then she, when she left that, she then opened a kitchen store. So a totally different path for her. And I think both my parents are entrepreneurial just generally. They both work really, really hard. My father worked in finance and we grew up in a, not a crazy privileged life, but definitely a privileged life of she didn't have to work and she chose to. And I I think that really left such an impact on me because I remember her just saying to me, it is so important to carve your own way in this world and to be doing something good for the, for humanity. And my brother and I, so my, and my father used to say it all the time. He's like, I'm here and I do X and your mom is saving lives. And so you should really like, he was very, very clear about how much more important her job was. And my brother and I both within six months of each other quit finance. We both started in finance and then quit. And now I think make, I make people really happy and my brother is saving lives in the ICU. So it's, it, we both have been very much impacted by what my parents did and said. And so at a really early age with that, like, I guess when you were like four or five, what were your parents doing at that point? Was your mom already running a store or was she still in nursing? No. So when I, when I was about four or five, my mom was in nursing. She was in nursing school, but she was in nursing and my dad worked in finance. So it wasn't until, I guess it wasn't until I was closer to my teens that really both my parents, like early, early teens, they started doing more entrepreneurial things. They were much more corporate before that. And what did you, every kid talks about like what they want to do when they grow up. Like, do you remember what you were saying at four, five, six, eight, that kind of range? Well, when I was five, I wanted to be a bus driver because I was obsessed with my bus driver. And I, it's documented in many a thing that I wrote and talked about. And then as I got older, I really wanted to be either a lawyer or an actress, both jobs that my dad did not want me to do. And he was very, he was, dad's a pretty strong person. So he started 
basically offering to set me up with people to get internships way before internships were a thing. I was one of the first interns at every place I worked at. And I think he thought I should be in business and I was like focused in the wrong direction. And so that's how I kind of started my first internship was at Teen People magazine. So a magazine that is no longer. But you know, those that was my first like work real work experience other than like how old were you when, at that point? I was a I was going into my freshman year of college. Okay, got it. And so during high school, were you that like was that the period that you wanted to be either an actress or a lawyer? Yes, and I I like kept going until my dad basically said, "There's no way I'm paying for you know, law school, and I'm not paying for you to become an actress and sit in New York for ten years until you get you know until you break out." But I worked. I had jobs all through college or all through high school. Excuse me. My parents were again. We I think. We, while we lived in some nice places, my parents did not give me a huge allowance. They were pretty strict on money. And so it was always, to me, my friends would always have all this cash. My parents just did not do that. So I always had to work. Which, yeah, I think instills, I had a similar upbringing in that sense. Like my dad did very well, but would remind me that the dog gets all his money and he, I get nothing. And was like, when I got out of college, he's like, you can hang out for the weekend, but then you better go figure out what the hell you're doing. Like it was like, go to your thing. And I kind of appreciate it. My dad made me pay him back for my senior year of college, which I hated at the time. I mean, I hated it. And I look back and I think, you know, already, again, as a white person in the United States, like I'm pretty aware of my privilege. I also think that I, as someone who grew up with that privilege, I then, I I think I know that I, like I started on second base. And so, but my dad was very, very clear with me that nothing was going to be handed to me outside of what was happenstance. And so I just, I worked really, really hard and I, I wish I had had, I got it then, but I really get it now. And so I think he did his best to try to instill something in me that would, that would be, that would have a lot of hustle and drive. But I also just really liked succeeding. And I really liked, you know, being productive. And I think the other thing was that they really wanted both my brother and I to have some sort of good mark on the world. It wasn't just about money. So I think that that really, and I think it's what led my brother from finance to nursing. Yeah. No, with that influence, so to speak, I mean, your parents' influence can't, is undeniable for everybody. Like it's very rare that, and very, very rare that you escape. As you said, your dad was like, do not be a lawyer, do not be an actress, even though that was what you found passion in at that point. It, it can easily deter you. I was I was going to be a guitarist and my parents, in a lighter way, they didn't say you can't do it. They said, why don't you have a backup plan? And taught me that like business was this important thing because they actually showed me behind the music was Sting when he got ripped off for $20 million by his manager because he didn't understand business. And they just keep reinforcing this idea of like, you can be a guitarist, but you better understand business. And so then I just looked more and more into that side of things too. So I get it. And so you go to college, you get your dad helps you get this internship at teen people. And so did that open your eyes? Did you want to get into media at that point? Like, how was that experience? I really enjoyed it. I, my first time I worked in ad sales, and then I came back for a second summer and did PR. And I really didn't enjoy PR. So I then kind of... But you like sales? Was that part of it too? I liked sales, but I didn't, I kind of didn't love the, that life was very like corporate office. And I think I felt a little bit like I have more, I have some, I have a different type of personality. And one of my dad's other friends, again, who I had, I had forged my own relationship with, I approached him and said, I'd really love to work for your, for your company. And he didn't have a 
role. I said, you know, just the summer and he didn't have a role, but he said, I can, I can get you set up with an interview at the New York Stock Exchange and let's see what happens. And so I got an interview with one of the brokers down on the, on the floor of the stock exchange. And I think, I think he had no idea why I wanted to work down there, but I just really wanted a job that was different and wasn't in an office. And I really looked up to everyone in finance. I thought, I thought that that industry was just so smart. And at the time I was in so much awe. So I got that job and I worked for two summers on the floor of the, on the floor. And so you graduated and basically thought, I'm going into finance. This is a cool calling. As you said, you respected it a lot. You thought it was a really smart industry. Yeah. So I, I love my first summer. And what I realized and what everyone on the floor told me is they said, don't work down here, work upstairs in the trading desk. That's where all the action is. And that's where the future of this business is. And I had, I luckily had some really good bosses on the floor that said, do not stay here. This is where you should be. And so I, so I then, I know this all sounds very crafty, but again, my dad instilled a lot of hustle in me and was not going to hand me anything. And I started working in career services because again, I need, a, I need a job in college. My parents still not giving me a lot of money. And so I worked at career services and I basically would make sure that my resume was in all of the piles for all of the banks that were interviewing. Which school were you at? I was at Colgate. Okay, got it. Nice. Yeah. So And so then I started interviewing and I got smoked in so many interviews. Like It wasn't even close because I had a 3-1. I was a philosophy major and a theater minor. I mean, I was not set up to go into finance. And I had a couple of good interviews, which, which once you get one interview, you start getting better at it and like, and you start understanding what the questions are going to be. And I think that that really, really helped because I, I don't know that career services was like, I don't know that that interview prep was really going to get me there, but I had one interview with my boss, my, you know, would have been my future or became my future boss at JP Morgan. And he just saw it in me and he hired me. And so I had a job December of my senior year. Amazing. That gives you a very easy last semester of school, huh? It was. Although my dad scared me so much that they would rescind the offer that I actually, I think, worked harder that semester than most of the other semesters. Because I thought if I lose this job, I will, I'm sunk. So. And I got to ask, because you mentioned it, uh, your dad, you said, made you pan back for your senior year of college. Was there a reason for that? Or you just wanted you to stand on your own? What was that? Where'd that come from? So when my dad was going to college, he ref- like he didn't want to go to Vietnam. And he and his parents had had like a, a very, very, very big argument over it. And my dad basically became financially independent because of it and ended up paying for... So my dad also went to Colgate. That's how my parents met. My mom's from that town. And my dad went to Colgate. And so they had a... Is that where Colgate is? It's in Hamilton. Hamilton. Got it. So they, so they have such a cute love story, but they, because my dad, because they got into this falling out, my dad became financially independent and ended up taking out loans and paying back for his, paying for his last two years of school. And it really instilled in him something. Again, my father and I are from some similar towns in Connecticut. And I, I think he really understood the value of what education does cost and should cost. And, and I had a just like as an anecdote, I had a f- almost full ride to Boulder to University of Colorado. And I wanted to go to a private school. I wanted to go to Colgate. I wanted to go to where my, all my family had gone to. My mom was from that town. And so my dad was really honest with me about what that meant financially. And so 
he then, my brother and I both paid for part of our school. My brother went to Boulder, so and we were living in state at the time. So it was a little bit of a different cost. But I, I genuinely, I think that there are these moments in your child's life. And as we were just talking since you, you know, you are going to be a father soon. And as a mom, it's really, really hard to say no to your kids because they're like the love of your life. But if you can instill a sense of financial stability and, and, and appreciation, I, it sets you up as a child. It sets you up for such a different life. And I have always really deeply appreciated money and what, and what things cost because of, of how my parents set up life for us. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And so you go to JP Morgan and that's it right off into the sunset in finance, right? I mean, I almost got like, I almost got let go because I failed my series seven and I, by like two points and I'll never, I'll never forget my boss who had hired me was like, you failed. What are you talking about? Luckily they didn't let me go. And I, and I kept my job, but I, I think to myself every day, like there's some, been some lucky moments in my life. And that was seriously one of them, but no. So I worked for three years at JP Morgan and then I got recruited to go to Morgan Stanley and I covered mostly hedge funds. And I was deeply invested in, in my clients, deeply invested in to the point where every single review I ever had a year end review was you care more about your clients and you care about the internal team. And so that was like my biggest knock because I just cared so deeply about making sure they were happy and that they got what they needed. No. And that, I mean, there's something to be said about that caring about the customer, you know, I think as business owners, we can all hope that our employees do the same thing. And I think if we heard our middle management telling our employees, oh, don't care about the customer so much, we might have a little bit of a fit. It's so interesting. So I worked for 10 years in finance. I worked at JP Morgan for three and then Morgan Stanley for seven. And when I left and started Olive in June, when I first started Olive in June in 2013, it was the customer's always right, right? It, it was very much that mentality. And I had come from that mindset. What has shifted in the past, you know, close to 10 years is a deep appreciation for the employee and for the internal experience and making sure. And, and I don't know that people were trying to ignore the employee, but they weren't entirely focused. They were very focused on the customer. And I think I learned a lot of lessons in the salon. We had a, we've had a salon business first, and now we have a products business. But I've, I learned a lot of lessons that it now served me very well in the products business. And I deeply appreciate the employees who kind of said to me, we're, we're, we're lopsided here. We're, we're focusing on the, on the customer too much. Yeah, no, that's really good point. And so to dive back into that a little bit. So you were at JP Morgan, then what, sorry, Morgan Stanley. And then Morgan Stanley, yeah, for 10 total years. Seven years. What, seven years is a decent amount of time. Like what took you, took you out of that? You had alluded to it earlier that you wanted to, you know, I guess go with more purpose, make a difference, but after seven years, did you just burn out? Did you not see it going anywhere? Like, why leave? I really, really, really wanted to do something different. I wanted to do something that matched my passions more. I I felt like at some point, you, I got promoted a bunch of times, and I was making enough money, and I was excited about that. But I was like, all I do is think about my next vacation. I think about the next time I can go shopping. Like, I don't really care if the market goes up or down. And this doesn't feel, while I'm competitive and I like being good at something, it doesn't feel like I'm actually doing something good. Like for the world, it feels like I'm just, I'm just part of this process of like rich people getting richer. And 
there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not, there's no, there's no shade to finance, but it's not really what I think my true calling is. And so I really started to think about what could I do or create that would be more aligned with who I am and what, and what kind of business I want to be working for. At the time I thought, you know, for a hot second, I thought, oh, I'll work in entertainment, which is really what brought me to LA. And I started interviewing. But when I walked into Dry Bar, which is really what the Olive and June salons were modeled after originally, I felt like this experience is so wonderful. It's this affordable luxury experience. And I felt very similarly with other types of experiences and food, especially where it was like Earth Cafe or sugar fish or, you know, these experiences where you like feel really like they're elevated, but they're at this price point that that's affordable luxury. And so that's really what caused me to say, oh, I'm going to go do this in nails. Hey, I wanted to take a break to tell you about my brand new book called The Hawk Method, the three principles of marketing that made over 3000 brands soar. If you like the podcast, you'll love the book. You can get it on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. All right, back to our show. Tell me about that transition. You were you married at that point? No, so I was I actually was married before my current husband. So a little tea. I think my my whole family thought I was having a psychotic break. I was like, I'm leaving my husband, I'm leaving my job and I'm moving to LA and it's all good. I'm just gonna go into nails. But I but basically I had this idea and I was dating my now husband. And I I, I think it was like mildly inevitable that I moved to LA, but my family was a little bit, especially my dad, as I'm sure you, the narrative is, the, the through line is there. Then my father was like, what are you going to do? Why are you doing that? That is not going to make any money. And I really just understood it. Also, Forbes had just written an article about Allie and Drybar and what she had created. And I was like, this is what I'm going to go do this. I'm going to go be Allie. And ironically, I just hosted her bachelorette last weekend. So, you know, we did become best friends. The world is a, the world is a crazy place. But so I left my job. And nine months later, opened Olive in June in Beverly Hills on one of the most busy streets in the Beverly Hills Triangle. And thank goodness it worked because it would have been epically embarrassing had it not, I guess. Yeah. And so did it take like, you know, I know a lot of businesses obviously just take off right away and everything's fine. But like, tell me about like you opened up, how'd it go? How how did you get this off the ground? I think because we built something really special and I had a brand director who was like an incredible human and I had had enough time in L.A., for people to talk to people about it. And then it just like, and then Instagram was starting to rise. Like it all, it was like the right timing, the right amount of groundswell. It took off immediately. It was really exciting to see that we had daily wait lists, that people were obsessed with the experience. We could never hire enough manicurists. It was just always, there was always so much demand. I think what was hard was trying to make, make it profitable. And make it actually be like this really successful financial financially, which of course, you know, my dad had flagged, so he loved those conversations. And it really wasn't it, that wasn't why I went into products. But what happened was the the business expanded to three salons, and I was less interested in doing a hundred at that point. I was less interested because I really understood the impact digitally that we were having on the world because of Instagram and because of all the press and everything that we had all the eyes focused on us. I mean, we have people coming from Australia to Coachella and stopping at Olive in June for their manicure. So it was very, it was an exciting, we had exciting momentum in the business. And I thought to myself, how can I actually bring this to everyone everywhere? Because I don't think this is going to be the affordable luxury experience. I'm not, I'm not going to bring this to every city. And so my mind, my mindset shifted on how I wanted to deliver the business. 
Got it. And so when did that, I mean, what's taking a step back, did you originally, was your thought like, I'm going to do this in Beverly Hills and then just open it in Santa Monica and then start with Southern California and then continue to expand brick and mortar wise? Or what was the original plan there? The original plan was dry bar for nails. So absolutely what you just mapped out. And then, so when we got to three, when we had Santa Monica, we had Pasadena, we had Beverly Hills. I really tired on that part of the business. I felt like there's no way, you know, of course things are always harder when you're making less, you're not making a ton of profit. Right. But I really felt like everything we're trying to do, we can never hire enough manicurists. We can never really satisfy demand. So you're always annoying people, by the way. And then your manicurists are tired because they're, they're just get like every day, there's so many customers. And they just never, it always felt like the max potential here is limited by, by staffing. And so I really thought to myself, how can I actually give people a salon quality manicure? And the other thing is that we heavily compensated our team. So you had a situation where if you're heavily compensating your team, how far, like how high can your prices be before you're just luxury? And then you haven't democratized anything. You've just had a luxury salon for, again, I'm back to like serving rich people. So I, which is, there's no shade in that, but just, it's not what like makes my, if you follow the housewives, it doesn't fill my love tank. So I was like, I want to make everybody happy. I want to make people happy that can afford an $8 bottle of nail polish. And I want to make people happy that can afford a $50 manicure. Right. So how do I make everyone happy? And so that's really where it started of me thinking, can I create products, like actually products that will change the at-home manicure experience because the current products don't change the at-home manicure experience. They're just professional products and they're going to give it to the consumer. It's like, good luck. And so that's really where it started. And then I did a deep dive into the industry, how it broke down. And real quick, when did that start? Because you have this, you know, lightning in a bottle, frankly, it sounds like that, like you launched this place in Beverly Hills. It goes better than you could, you even thought it would. So it's great. How quickly before you're like, that was great, but like, we got to change this. Probably about 2017. Okay. So you did it for four years and then... Yeah, I did it for about four years. I mean, 2016, it started to percolate where I, where I had opened the third location and I thought, okay, this is easy to do. Like once you open like three locations, you kind of like know how to open things. But I was really running up against... I mean, I was three locations in one city. So I was really running up against that staffing issue. And I felt a little bit like we were raising prices because we were, again, compensating heavily. And it was... I got to the point where I was like, how high can we really go before this really becomes the Peninsula Spa and isn't what it started out as? And I think that's the, that's the hard part with all affordable luxury is that like, you know, especially in states like California, which I love, you know, the way employees are protected, but it, it, it sets the business up for like to then raise prices and then the customers are pissed. And so you really have this like hard thing to figure out. I'm not totally sure that nail salons as a concept I mean, we, I could do a whole TED talk on this, but that they really make sense because the problem is, is that most of the nail salons that are, are paying in cash to their employees. And so it's, it's not actually a government regulated. And so you, you're kind of set up, you're disadvantaged if you're actually following the law. So it was like, that's what I, I kind of got. I was like, oh, and I felt like I was in business school. I was like, is this the exercise where they say, don't do this business? But we had, to, oh, this actually, you can't make money doing this. But we had this big brand. And everyone would like would say, I can't believe you built all of in June. How you know, people would ask what our revenues were and they would think they were like millions and millions of dollars. And I was like, Oh my goodness, you guys have such a disproportionate view of what is actually happening here. 
Which is something to say about the marketing and branding you did, though, because if people assume it's a massive business and it's not, that's good and bad, but there's a lot of good to that, too. Totally. And and it was exciting to have built. We were so strict about the brand and the way that we were presenting ourselves to the world and the experience in the salon and you know, Instagram, I was running it and I was like, I was making sure that it, it was never, nothing was ever farmed out to other people. And so we really, we paid so much attention to that. And so when we started to think about products, it was the same attention to detail of, okay, if I'm going to disrupt the at-home nail market, which essentially was 10% of the market, no one was really doing their nails at home. Everybody, vast majority was in the salon then I need to come up with something really unique and different that actually allows people to get a salon mani at home or else it's not worth it because I don't just want to like a line of nail polish. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And so you start working on this, as you said, you start percolating in 2016, working on it in 17. How long until you had this direct-to-consumer piece launched? We had launched nail art stickers in 2018 that were like... They were pretty easy to pop up. Those were like six to seven months that we found the manufacturer. And then we, we popped those up because it was like easy, go to market, see if you have something. And it really played off the fact that we did a ton of nail art in the salons. We didn't launch the Manny system, which is our hero product, which is our like, you know, salon manicure in a box system until late spring 2019. But by the time we launched that, it was immediate. It was like we launched it. And it was very, very clear that we had something really special and that people, I mean, we introduced something called the Poppy, which is a silicone rubber handle that you can put on the top of most nail polish bottles to stabilize your non-dominant hand. Because the number one issue is people think they can't do it themselves. And so if you can stabilize that and come out with something really like show-stopping, then people literally stop their Instagram feeds and said, what is that? I can try that. And so that first year, we did double our expectations in eight months. It was really, really exciting to see. And I think we had obviously, similar to what M did it into the gloss, like we had built our brand for a really long time before, you know, before she launched Glossier, same thing before we launched product, we had built this brand. So people were excited for us to come out with products and they really trusted us and they had been trusting us for half a decade. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And so I guess timing's perfect. You come out in mid 2019, get it up to stuff, like start working and then COVID, you know, eight months later. Well, and the craziest thing is that it takes you two and a half years, right? So like build, percolate, build this thing, come out with these products. I mean, these, this poppy was like industrial designers and engineers. The polish took two solid years or two and a half years because it was like, I was working on that formula and testing it on 30 people every round. And it was just with seven manufacturers and trying to test against each other. And I iterated on this. We now have a very, very custom formula. We started with all stock formulas, but it took a really long time. And then we had 2019 to iterate, right? We Our brush, we changed in our bottle. There's certain things that we changed, our sponge and our remover pot. So like I got to change a bunch of things. Literally so lucky because when 2020 hit, our business went 16 times in a year. It was it was bananas. Yeah, that's, that is bananas. And so I guess what was your thought when it first hit? Like when you... Oh shit, we don't have enough inventory. Was that actually it? Like, did it hit? No, sorry. Not when the first, the spike hit, when COVID hit. Like that first, were you already like, this is going to go crazy? Like you you were, obviously no one was excited about the actual disease, but in terms of lockdowns and everything, you weren't going like, oh my God, I have these three places. You were just like, oh wow, we're going to replace this. Like we're good. The first thought, it's a really, really good question. Cause like my first, my, when you said it, I thought to myself, that really was my first thought. 
the first thought was the salons. It's a really good point because when we, but we thought we'd be closed for a month. I mean, the reality was, I didn't think two weeks was going to be the, like, people were like, it's only going to be a couple of weeks. And I thought, they're making everybody shut down. It's like, it was unprecedented. But I also thought, this is, this is a month. This is like, probably a month and like, and, and we'll be back up and running. I did think to myself, we're going to lose a ton of money on this rent because we had three salons in very prestigious areas. And I was more worried in the salon front. The most thing I was worried about was, are the manicurists going to get an unemployment? And so I really wanted them to get immediately on an unemployment because I was starting to hear people were having trouble getting it. And so we really tried to work with the team. And so that was, I guess, thought number one. By the way, it's crazy because thought number 87 was, am I going to be okay, right? It was always, it's always other people. Thought number two was, I do not have enough inventory. Of, we, we did not plan for, you know, we planned for a pretty robust year. We planned to go six times that year and, you know, to go 16. I mean, I called my COO. Was that been online or was it also brick and mortar? Like, were you still kind of thinking of going more sh- shops or you were like, I'm going to be pivoting into this? So the previous year, we had done, mo- our business is mostly in products, right? was mostly online with a little bit of Target. We did this cute little end cap that was n- nationwide, but we did a collab with Essie with like our stickers because when we pitched it the year prior, we didn't have polish. So it was our stickers and their polish. It became a little bit funny when I had a poppy and, and, and polish, and then I was selling with their polish. But it was a really good marketing moment for us in Target. That sold out in a week in 2019. So by the time 2020 hits, not only do I think I'm, I'm going to have a robust e-com business, but I have a big, I have a, like 12 SKUs in Target. So it was a little bit like I kind of, I, I knew the path of where we're going. It was retail and e-com, but we didn't have inventory. We, we didn't even have inventory enough for either spot, right? But especially e-com because that's what started to rip because the systems were only sold on e-com. So you were only able to get the Manny in a box on e-com. It was more so like polishes and stickers and the poppy. And, and that was it. It wasn't all the tools at Target. So yeah, but I, I thought I called my COO and I said, I said, we do not have enough inventory. Here's the number I think we're going to hit this month. And she said, I thought we we're going to hit 60, 70% of that. So if you think we are going to make those sales, I'm telling you right now, we do not have the product to do it. So we had to scramble and we were, and I would say our manufacturers were incredible. I think we all realized that most businesses in this moment were not, were not doing well and the manufacturers need to, to make money. And I think they thought if this business is, we're going to lean into the business that actually might be able to capitalize in this moment. I also think the other thing we've thought, we really weighed, it weighed heavily on us. The third thing probably, you know, after like team and, and do we have inventory was everyone's going through this really hard time right now. How do we bring joy? Like, what can we do? And we knew a lot of people had bought these systems. So we started going live and we went live every single day for 50 days in a row. And we did it because we just hung out with people and we did our nails and we hung out and we made tea. And I brought on a bunch of my friends who, you know, have big followings and have never painted their nails. And we did lives together. And we just tried to be this like connective tissue for people. And it helped that our price point is a mass price point. Our price, you know, you know, an under $10 bottle of nail polish is, is an accessible price point. And so people could really experience it and just hang with us. And we were like, if you have SC polish or OPI polish, just come hang with us. It was never about like, you have to have olive and June. It was, we all are home. And this is, 
kind of crazy and let's just band together. So that, and everybody, I think we won an award for like marketing of the year for doing that. And it was never about that. It was always about how do you give something of yourself to other people in this moment of, of kind of terror and crisis and just try, try to bond and try to, and try to enjoy it. Some normalcy, like and we saw it with like, I'm on the board of a workout company too, where like they had personal trainers that were trying to figure out how they were going to work with these gyms. The company owned a bunch of gyms and they got shut down in COVID. And then they said, well, what are we going to do with our trainers and our clients? Oh, we can just have our trainers teach our clients at home. Like <laughs> go figure. And they actually ended up creating an incredible business when it was win, win, win. Like everybody won out of it. Their employees won, the business won, their clients still needed that. And it's the same thing. Like people love that experience, you know, to go into get a manicure, but at the same time, they still wanted their nails to look good. They still wanted to have that experience. So they did it at home. And it seems like you tapped into that when frankly, a lot of entrepreneurs just freeze up and go, well, I guess we can't do anything. Thank you. I appreciate that. I also think what I learned for me, having a manicure, it just, it's how I feel put together. Like that is the feeling that I feel. But I think a lot of people really when they are painting their nails, it is a form of self-care and like Zen and calming and relaxing and meditation. So it was different experiences for different people. For me, it just made me feel like, okay, I got this. No matter what happens, I could be in my sweats on the Zoom, but at least my nails are done. And for a lot of people, it was calming. And so when I learned that, I thought, how can I empower people to do this? So again, you get through this moment in this period of time. And have you seen the success keep up? Like, are you still growing 2021, 22? Like things just seem up and up in that sense? We are. It's really, really exciting. It's been, you know, I think... I think it's, you always think it'll pull back a little and we've grown every year, which is really, really exciting that it hasn't pulled back. I do think that we, we just recently launched press-ons, which is really the other half of the at-home nail market. And I never thought we would do that, but it was really, our community really wanted something that was more instant than painting their nails. And so, and so seeing that our polish business is a, is a great business, but seeing new people, but also our existing customers be excited about both has been really fun. And I think as a business, we set such a high bar for ourselves, the Manny system, that then we came out with a pedicure system. Now we have our press on system and our press on sets. We actually like up the bar so heavily on the innovation for press ons. We're the first ever recycled plastic press on. We're 94% PCR. We're, si- we're first ever size inclusive. We have 21 sizes, which is more than double the, you know, what's on the market now. It's been really exciting to, we came out with like four shapes, four lengths, like all, all those patterns and solids. And I think when we launched with like 44 SKUs, which is just insane, I think we just keep upping the bar for ourselves. So we make it, it's not about even like the revenue, right? It's about like just achieving more in this category. That's a really hot category, but as pretty sleepy and stale incumbents that have just kind of laid their path and their tracks and that's where they're going. And it's been exciting to shake it up a bit and really say like, you can come with a fresh, fresh perspective to this part of beauty and really create something special. Now, and that makes a lot of sense. I mean, focusing on how you can dif- differentiate and actually create a new product that's not just for the sake of like, oh, they want press-ons, give them press-ons. Like, well, how are we going to do press-ons? How are we going to make it different? Makes a lot of sense and taking that care. So two kind of final questions for you. Number one, what's next? You've you know come a long way. You've done a lot of... I mean, you've had this for almost a decade, but even in the past couple of years, it's changed so much. So what do you think is coming down the pike and in the future for you? We absolutely want to keep innovating in the space. I still think that there's a lot of really fun 
new products that don't exist and then t- our take, the Olive in June take on what exists. And so I think there's a ton of innovation yet to be had. I also think it's been really exciting to be at Target. It's been exciting to be as accessible as we can be with our products and to be nationwide this year and and continue to, to build out that distribution is obviously really, really exciting to us. For me, I used to read People Magazine and whatever that person was 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 using, I was excited about it. And so for us to have, you know, incredible humans around the, you know, around the country existing in our products and being excited about our products and being able to access them is really, really exciting. So there's a lot to come. Yeah, no. And so last question for you is someone that was, you know, seems like brought up with a lot of like intent, like your, your parents really thought about how they were raising you. What is something you either did hear or wish you heard growing up that really helped you get to success that you think that someone else trying to achieve their dreams should hear? You know, a lot of people, there's probably two things. The first is that a lot of people bring this point up on Instagram a lot. And I think it's, it, but it's kind of a quiet point, but I really think it should be louder. People discover brands when they're huge. And they think this brand has always been this way, or this company has always been big. And the reality is it took a really long time to get there, as you can hear from my story. And it took a lot of like twists and turns and and all the things. And it didn't, nobody starts a brand and is like already huge, you know, unless you're like, you know, Kim Kardashian. But even Kim Kardashian, like, you know, she works hard every single day, right, to build these things. So I think it's like really important to remember that that if you're not a celebrity, it's okay if you have to like work really, really, really hard for five, six, seven years before you, your company gets really big. And that, and that is, that's, that you should expect that. I think that that's an important expectation. And then I think the other thing is my first, one of my first, well, not my first boss, but one of my first bosses on, uh, on, in finance said, you come to work to work. And it was a really like straightforward point that was like, do not come here to like hang out. Okay, like we're here to work and that's why we're here. And so I think I really, that really hit me because every day I think, how can I maximize my day? And I feel that way about my personal life too. It's like my personal experiences. I mean, I went to a concert last night with one of my closest friends who manages somebody really special. And like, I really enjoyed every minute that I was there. So it's like put 100% in whatever your experience is at that moment, but especially with work and do the work because it takes a lot. These things don't get created out of, Thin air. Awesome advice. And thank you for that. And yeah, this has been awesome. Thank you for coming on Hawk Talk, Sarah. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>